Chapter Ten, Part Two of the History of Standard Oil, Volume Two, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Cutting to Kill. Mr. Rice claims in his preface to the collection of letters here quoted from that he has hundreds of similar ones from different states in the Union, and the writer asked to examine them. The package of documents submitted in reply to this request was made up literally of hundreds of letters. They came from twelve different states and show everywhere the same competitive method, cutting to kill. One thing very noticeable in these letters is the indignation of the dealers at the standard methods of securing trade. They resent threats. They complain that the standard agents knows about their premises, that they ask impudent questions, and that they generally make the trade disgusting and humiliating. In Mississippi in the 80s, the indignation of the small dealers against Chess, Carley, and Company was so strong that they formed associations binding themselves not to deal with them. The same tactics have been kept up in the Southwest ever since. A letter dated April 28, 1891, from the vice president of the Waters Pierce Oil Company, A. M. Finley, to his agent at Dallas, Texas, says bluntly, We want to make the prices at Dallas and in the neighborhood on brilliant and water-white oil that will prevent Clem, an independent dealer, from doing any business. And Mr. Finley asks, Hope you will make it a point to be present at the next meeting of the city council tomorrow night, and do everything possible to prevent granting a permit to build within the city limits, unless buildings similar to ours is constructed, for it would not be fair to us to allow someone else to put up constructions for the storage of oil when they had compelled us to put up such an expensive building as we have. Mr. Rice is not the only independent oil dealer who has produced similar testimony. Mr. Teagle and Mr. Shull, in Ohio, have furnished considerable. The reason we quit taking your oil is this, wrote a Kansas dealer to Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle in 1896. The Standard Oil Company notified us that if we continued handling your oil, they would cut the oil to ten cents retail, and that we could not afford to do, and for that reason we are forced to take their oil or do business for nothing or at a loss. The Standard agent has repeatedly told me that if I continued buying oil and gasoline from your wagon, wrote an Ohio dealer to the same firm in 1897, they would have it retailed here for less than I could buy. I paid no attention to him, but yesterday their agent was here and asked me decidedly if I would continue buying oil and gasoline from your wagon. I told him I would do so. Then he went and made arrangements with the dealers that handle their oil and gasoline to retail it for seven cents. Mr. Shull summed up his testimony before the same committee to which Mr. Teagle gave the above by declaring, You take $10,000 and go into the business and I will guarantee you won't be in business 90 days. Their motto is that anybody going into the oil business in opposition to them, they will make life a burden to him. That is about as near as you can get to it. Considerable testimony of the same sort of practices was offered in the recent hearing before the Industrial Commission, most of it general in character. The most significant special case was offered by Mr. Westgate, the treasurer of the American Oil Works, an independent refinery of Titusville, Pennsylvania. 
The American oil works, it seems, were in 1894 shipping oil called Sunlight in barrels to South Bend, Washington. This was in the territory of the Standard agents at Portland, Oregon, one of whom wrote to a South Bend dealer when he heard of the intrusion. We will state for your information that never a drop of oil has reached South Bend of better quality than what we have always shipped into that territory. They can name it Sunlight, Moonlight, or Starlight. It makes no difference. You can rest assured if another carload of Sunlight arrives at your place, it will be sold very cheap. We do not purpose to allow another carload to come into that territory unless it comes and is put on the market at one-half its actual cost. You can convey this idea to the young man who imported the carload of Sunlight Oil. When John D. Archibald of the Standard Oil Company had his attention called to this letter by Professor Jenks of the Industrial Commission, Mr. Archibald characterized that letter as a foolish statement by a foolish and unwise man, and promised to investigate it. Later he presented the commission with an explanation from the superior of the agent, who declared that the writer of the letter did not have any authority to say that oil would be sold on the basis mentioned. The letter, he continued, was intended to be written in a jocular manner to deny a claim that he was selling oil inferior in quality to that sold by others. It is hard for the mere outsider to catch the jocularity of the letter, and it must have been much more difficult for the dealer who received it to appreciate it. Independent oil dealers of the present day complain bitterly of a rather novel way employed by the Standard for bringing into line dealers whose prejudices against buying from them are too strong to be overcome by the above methods. This is through what are called bogus oil companies. The obdurate dealer is approached by the agent of a new independent concern, call it the ABC Oil Company, for illustration. The agent seeks trade on the ground that he represents an independent concern, and that he can sell at lower prices than the firm from which the dealer is buying. Gradually he works his way into the independence trade. As a matter of fact, the new company is merely a standard jobbing house which makes no oil and which conceals its real identity under a misleading name. The mass of reports from railroad freight offices quoted from in this article corroborate this claim of the independence. The ABC Oil Company is mentioned again and again as shipping oil, and in the audited reports it is always checked off in the same fashion as the known standard companies, and none of its shipments is referred to standard agents. Independents all over the country tell of loss of markets through underselling by these bogus companies. The lower price which a supposedly independent concern gives to a dealer who will not, under any condition, buy of the standard, need not demoralize the standard trade in the vicinity if the concession is made with caution. After the trade is secure, that is, after the genuine independent is ousted, the masquerading concern always finds itself obliged to advance prices. When the true identity of such a company becomes known, its usefulness naturally is impaired, and it withdraws from the field, and a new one takes its place. There is never a dealer in oil too small to have applied the above methods of competition. In recent years they have frequently been applied even to oil peddlers. In a good many towns of the country, Oil is sold from door to door by men whose whole stock in trade is their peddling wagons. Many of these oil peddlers build up a good trade. As a rule, they sell standard oil. 
Let one take independent oil, however, and the case is at once reported. His customers are located and at once approached by a standard tank wagon man who frequently, it is said, not only sells at a lower price than they have been paying, but even goes so far as to clean and fill the lamps. In these raids on peddlers of independent oil, refined oil has been sold in different cities at the doors of the consumers at less than crude oil was bringing at the wells, and several cents per gallon less than it was selling to wholesale dealers in refined. It is claimed by independents that at the present time the bogus companies generally manage this matter of driving out peddlers, thus saving the standard the unpopularity of the act and the dissatisfaction of the rise in price which, of course, follows as soon as the trade is secure. The general explanation of these competitive methods which the standard officials have offered is that they originate with overzealous employees and are disapproved of promptly if brought to the attention of the heads of the house. The cases seem rather too universal for such an explanation to be entirely satisfactory. Certainly the system of collecting information concerning competitive business is not practiced by the exceptional overzealous employee, but is a recognized department of the Standard Oil Company's business. In the mass of documents from which the reports of oil shipments referred to above were drawn are certain papers showing that the system is nearly enough universal to call for elaborate and expensive bookkeeping at the headquarters of each standard marketing division. For instance, on the next page is a fragment illustrating the page of a book kept at such a headquarters. What does this show? Simply that every day the reports received from railroad freight agents are entered in records kept for the purpose, that there is on file at the Standard Oil headquarters a detailed list of the daily shipments which each independent refiner sends out, even to the initials and number on the car in which the shipment goes. From this remarkable record the same set of documents shows that at least two sets of reports are made up. One is a report of the annual volume of business being done by each particular independent refiner or wholesale jobber, the other of the business of each individual local dealer so far as the detectives of the Standard Oil have been able to locate it. For instance, among the documents is the report of a well-known oil jobbing house in one of the big cities of the country produced on the next page. A comparison of this report with the firm's own accounts shows that the Standard came within a small percent of an accurate estimate of the XYZ's business. Another curious use made of these reports from the freight offices is forming a card catalogue of local dealers. Oil is usually sold at retail by grocers. It is with them that the local agents deal. Now the daily reports from the freight offices show the oil they receive. The competition reports from local agents also give more or less information concerning their business. A card is made out for each one of them, tabulating the date on which he received the oil, the name and location of the dealer he got it from, the quality, and the price he sells at. In a space left for remarks on the card, there is written in red ink any general information about the dealer the agent may have picked up. Often there is an explanation of why the man does not buy standard oil. Not infrequently, this explanation reads, is opposed to monopolies. It is impossible to say from documentary evidence how long such a card catalogue has been kept up by the standard. That it has been a practice for at least twenty-five years 
the following quotation from a letter written in 1903 by a prominent standard official in the Southwest to one of his agents shows. Where competition exists, says the official, it has been our custom to keep a record of each merchant's daily purchase of bulk oil, and I know of one town at least in the southern Texas division where that record has been kept, whether there was competition or not, from the past fifteen years. The inference from this system of keeping the eyes open is that the Standard Oil Company knows practically where every barrel shipped by every independent dealer goes, and where every barrel bought by every corner grocer from Maine to California comes from. The documents from which the writer draws the inference do not, to be sure, cover the entire country, but they do cover in detail many different states, and enough is known of the standard's competitive methods in states outside this territory to justify one in believing that the system of gathering information is in use everywhere. That it is a perfect system is improbable. Bribery is not as dangerous business in this country as it deserves to be. Of course, nothing but a bribe would induce a clerk to give up such information as these daily reports contain, but happily such is the force of tradition that even those who have practiced it for a long time shrink from discovery. It is one of those political and business practices which are only respectable when concealed. Naturally, then, the above system of gathering information must be handled with care, and can never have the same perfection as that Mr. Rockefeller expected when he signed the South Improvement Company charter. The moral effect of this system on employees is even a more serious feature of the case than the injustice it works to competition. For a consideration, railroad freight clerks give confidential information concerning freight going through their hands. It would certainly be quite as legitimate for post office clerks to allow Mr. Rockefeller to read the private letters of his competitors, as it is that the clerks of the railroad give him data concerning their shipments. Everybody through whose hands such information passes is contaminated by the knowledge. To be a factor, though even so small a one, in such a transaction, blunts one's sense of right and fairness. The effect on the local standard agent cannot but be demoralizing, prodded constantly by letters and telegrams from superiors to secure the countermand of independent oil, confronted by statements of the amount of sales which have gotten away from him, information he knows only too well to have been secured by underhand means, obliged to explain why he cannot get this or that trade away from a rival salesman, he sinks into habits of bullying and wheedling utterly inconsistent with self-respect. Is there nothing you independents can do to prevent our people finding out who you sell to? An independent dealer reports a hunted standard agent asking him. My life is made miserable by the pressure brought on to chase up your sales. I don't like such business. It isn't right. But what can I do? The system results every now and then, naturally enough, in flagrant cases of bribing employees of the independents themselves. Where the freight office does not yield the information, the rival's own office may, and certainly if it is legitimate to get it from one place, it is from the other. It is not an unusual thing for independent refiners to discharge a man whom they have reason to believe gives confidential information to the standard. An outrageous case of this, which occurred some ten years ago, is contained in an affidavit which has been recently put at the writer's disposition. It seems that in 1892 
the Lewis Emery Oil Company, an independent selling concern in Philadelphia, employed a man by the name of Buckley. This man was discharged, and in September of that year he went into the employ of the leading standard refinery of Philadelphia, a concern known as the Atlantic Refining Company. According to the affidavit made by this man Buckley, the managers of the Standard Concern, sometime in February 1893, engaged him in conversation about affairs of his late employer. They said that if they could only find out the names of the persons to whom their rivals sold, and for what prices, they could soon run him out of business. And they asked Buckley if he could get the information for them. After some discussion, one of the Standard managers said, "'What's the matter with the nigger?' alluding to a colored boy in the employment of the Lewis Emery concern. Buckley told them that he would try him. "'You can tell the nigger,' said one of the men, "'that he need be afraid, because if he loses his position, there's a position here for him.' Buckley saw the negro and made a proposition to him. The boy agreed to furnish the information for a price. "'Starting from February 1893,' says Mr. Buckley, and lasting up to about August of the same year, this boy furnished me periodically with the daily shipments of the Lewis Emery concern, which I took and handed personally, sometimes to one and sometimes to the other manager. They took copies of them and usually returned the originals. The Negro also brought what is known as the price book to Buckley, and a complete copy of this was made by the standard managers. In short, says Mr. Buckley in his affidavit, I obtained from the Negro all the inside facts concerning the Lewis Emery Oil Company's business, and I furnished them all to the standard managers. In return for this information, the Negro lad was paid various sums, amounting in all to about ninety dollars. Buckley says that they were charged upon the standard book to special expenses. The transaction was ended by the discharge of the colored boy by the Lewis Emery concern. The denouement of this case is tragic enough. The concern was finally driven out of business by these and similar tactics, so Mr. Emery and his partner both affirmed. The Negro was never taken into the Atlantic refinery, and Buckley soon after lost his position, as he, of course, richly deserved to. The man who shows himself traitorous, lying, thieving, even for the good of the oil business, is never kept long in the employment of the Standard Oil Company. It is notorious in the oil regions that the people who sell to the Standard are never given responsible positions. They may be shifted around to do dirty work, as the oil region's phrase goes, but they are pariahs in the concern. Mr. Rockefeller knows as well as any man ever did the vital necessity of honesty in an organization, and the Buckleys and Negroes who bring him secret intelligence never get anything but money and contempt for their pains. For the general public, absorbed chiefly in the question, how does this affect what we are paying for oil, the chief point of interest in the marketing contest is that, after they were over, the price of oil has always gone back with a jerk to the point where it was when the cutting began, and, not infrequently, it has gone higher. The public pays. Several of the letters already quoted in this chapter show the immediate recoil of the market to higher prices with the removal of competition. A table was prepared in 1892 to show the effect of competition on the price of oil in various states of the Union. The results were startling. 
In California, oil which sold at non-competitive points at twenty-six and a half cents a gallon, at competitive points brought seventeen and a half cents. In Denver, Colorado, there was an oil war on in the spring of 1892, and the same oil which was selling at Montrose and Garrison at twenty-five cents a gallon, in Denver sold at seven cents. This competition finally killed opposition, and Denver thereafter paid twenty-five cents. The profits on this price were certainly great enough to call for competition. The same oil which was sold in Colorado in the spring of 1892 at 25 cents sold in New York for exportation at 6.10 cents. Of course, the freight rates to Colorado were high. The open rate was said to be 9 cents a gallon, but that it cost the Standard Oil Company 9 cents a gallon to get its oil there, one would have to have documentary proof to believe and even if it did, there was still some ten cents profit on a gallon, five dollars on a barrel. In Kansas at this time, the difference between the price at competitive and non-competitive points was seven cents, in Indiana six cents, in South Carolina four and one-half cents. In 1897, Schofield, Shermer, and Teagle of Cleveland prepared a circular showing the difference between prices at competitive and non-competitive points in Ohio and sent it out to the trade. According to this circular, the public paid from 25 to 33 and a third percent more where there was no competition. The fact that oil is cheaper where there is competition, and also that the public has to pay the cost of the expensive oil wars which have been carried on so constantly for the last 25 years all over the country, is coming to be recognized, especially in the Middle West of this country, by both dealers and communities. There is no question that the attempts of standard agents to persuade or bully dealers into countermanding orders, or giving up an independent with whose oil they are satisfied, meet with much less general success than they once did. It even happens now and then that communities who have had experience with oil wars will stand by an independent dealer for months at a time, resisting even the temptation to have their lamps cleaned and filled at next to nothing. Briefly put, then, the conclusion from a careful examination of the testimony on standard competitive methods is this. The marketing department of the Standard Oil Company is organized to cover the entire country and aims to sell all the oil sold in each of its divisions. To forestall or meet competition, it is organized an elaborate secret service for locating the quantity, quality, and selling price of independent shipments. Having located an order for independent oil with a dealer, it persuades him, if possible, to countermand the order. If this is impossible, it threatens predatory competition, that is, to sell at cost or less until the rival is worn out. If the dealer still is obstinate, it institutes an oil war. In late years the cutting and the oil wars are often entrusted to so-called bogus companies, who retire when the real independent is put out of the way. In later years the standard has been more cautious about beginning underselling than formerly, though if a rival offered oil at a less price than it had been getting, and generally even small refineries can contrive to sell below the non-competitive prices of the standard, it does not hesitate to consider the lower price a declaration of war, and to drop its prices and keep them down until the rival is out of the way. The price then goes back to the former figure or higher. 
john d archbald's testimony before the industrial commission in eighteen ninety eight practically confirms the above conclusion mr archbald said that the standard was in the habit of fighting vigorously to hold and advance its trade even to the extent of holding prices down to cost until the rival gives way though he declared it to be his opinion that the history of the company's transactions would show that the competitor forces the fight mr archbald told the commission that he personally believed it was not advisable to sell below cost for the sake of freezing out a smaller rival save in greatly aggravated cases though he admitted the standard sometimes did it the trouble is that excepting mr rockefeller's foundation principle that the oil business belongs to him any competition is an aggravated case all that is reassuring in the situation has come from the obstinate stand of individuals the refiners who insisted on doing an independent business on the theory that this is a free country the grocers who resented the prying and bullying of standard agents and asserted their right to buy of whom they would the rare very rare community that grasped the fact that oil sold below cost temporarily meant later paying for the fight these features of the business belong to the last decade and a half at the period we have reached in this history that is the completion of the monopoly of the pipelines in eighteen eighty four and the end of competition in transporting oil there seemed to the independents no escape from mr rockefeller in the market the sureness and promptness with which he located their shipments seemed uncanny to them the ruthlessness and persistency with which he cut and continued to cut their prices drove them to despair the character of the competition mr rockefeller carried on in the markets particularly of the south and middle west of this country at this time aggravated daily the feeble refining element and bred contempt far and wide among people who saw the cutting and perhaps profited temporarily by it but who had neither the power nor the courage to interfere the knowledge of it fed greatly the bitterness in the oil regions part of the stock in conversation of every dissatisfied oil producer or ruined refiner became tales of disastrous conflicts in markets they told of crippled men selling independent oil from a handcart whose trade had been wiped out by a standard cart which followed him day after day practically giving away oil they told of grocers driven out of business by an attempt to stand by a refiner they told endless tales probably all exaggerated perhaps some of them false yet all of them believed because of such facts as have been rehearsed above there came to be a popular conviction that the standard would do anything it was a condition which promised endless annoyance to mr rockefeller and his colleagues it meant popular mistrust petty hostilities misinterpretations contempt abuse there were plenty of people even willing to deny mr rockefeller's ability that the standard was in a venture was enough in those people's minds to damn it anything the standard wanted was wrong anything they contested was right a verdict for them demonstrated the corruption of the judge and jury against them their righteousness mr rockefeller indeed was each year having more reason to realize monopoly building had its trials as well as its profits end of chapter ten recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com